Welcome back, guys, to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. This is episode seven. My name is Quinn Hennick, and if you're not familiar with Clinical Athlete, we are a network of healthcare providers who specialize in the man- management of athletes. You can find your nearest clinical athlete provider at clinicalathlete.com. And don't forget about the Clinical Athlete Forum, where clinicians, students, and coaches network, discuss, and share ideas and resources related to sports medicine, rehab, and performance. To join the forum or a potential listing on the Clinical Athlete Directory, details and applications can be found on clinicalathlete.com. And this podcast specifically can be found also on clinicalathlete.com, YouTube, and iTunes, where we always appreciate nice reviews if you find the show is helpful. Uh, as I mentioned, my name is Quinn Hennick, and I'm a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, California. And I'm joined by my usual cohorts, previously mentioned, uh, didn't, actually haven't mentioned you guys yet, uh, one of which is Michael Ray, a doctor of chiropractic in Harrisonburg, Virginia, owner of Shenandoah Valley Performance Clinic, I think I nailed it. And Galisto. What's up, Mike? How you doing? How's it going, Quinn? I'm doing good, man. We're also joined by Derek Miles, a doctor of physical therapy for Stanford Children's Health. What's up, Derek? How you doing, Quinn? Good. Anything new with you guys? Small talk? No. Nothing? No. The normal stuff. A bunch of uh, articles constantly getting sent back and forth and the occasional profane text telling the other one where to go and how to get there. Yeah. Well, like we always say, someday when it doesn't matter anymore, we're going to share the transcripts of our threads and uh, <laughs> just make it a book. Yeah, I think the odds of me gaining political office are pretty low at this point. Yeah, That'd probably be a bestseller, though. Probably. Uh, well, somebody asked, what's, what's new with me? What's new with you, Quinn? Oh, what's new with you, Quinn? Tell us. Let's see. Um, so I'm... Th- I don't have any travel scheduled for the next several months or like nothing, nothing, uh, substantial. And so I've, it's my usual like three month block of, um, sacrificing my business and my money to train like a weightlifter, even though I'm not very good. And so I always have like three or four months of that in the year where my life tanks, but then my training goes really well. And so I'm in the midst of that. It's a planned financial deload. I think we should uh, mention, though, that you will be making a guest appearance at combined sections this meeting or or the combined sections meeting this year. So it's worth looking out for our fearless leader when you're in New Orleans next month. Yeah, I'll be there. Uh, I got to go find a gym because I got a snatch and clean and jerk. And I'm going. They don't have that set up at CSM. You guys don't have platforms there? No, but I'm going to tell you right now. I wanted to do it this year at some point, maybe next year. I don't even want to say it because if it doesn't happen, then I'm just talking shit but i want to have a clinical athlete booth and then have a platform or two where we're just like cycling through somebody who's not at a at a conference or during like the you know the walkthroughs and the or poster meetings or whatever somebody's just lifting whatever but that's what i want so this is like the pre-publication of that so when someone ganks that idea next year we can go back to this and said you did it first you said it first Uh, yeah 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 exactly uh but other than that nothing's new just live in the dream. You guys know how it is. It's sunny and warm here in, in don't, don't California, even, Mike. What's the temperature in Virginia? Just shut, just shut the hell up, dude. I don't even want to talk about it. It, it. it is currently 15 degrees here in Virginia. That's if you're watching the YouTube version of this, Mike is in a hooded sweatshirt, and Quinn and I are both in shorts and T-shirts. Yeah. So. <laughs> I hate you guys. So. <laughs> On that note, the topic of today's show is self 
myofascial release. And inevitably, it will be a conversation regarding the implements of foam rolling or um, stick massage as, as we go through some of these articles. So just kind of to give you context, a self-myofascial release. There's three articles that we're looking at specifically, and we'll name those off here, one of which, which is titled Effects of Self-Myofascial Release, a Systematic Review uh, from Chris Beardsley and Jacob Scarabat. That's from 2015. The second article is titled The Effects of Self-Myofascial Release Using a Foam Roll or Roller Massager on Joint Range of Motion Muscle Recovery and Performance, a Systematic Review. And that's Scott Cheatham et al. from 2015. And then the last review is titled Is Self-Myofascial Release an Effective Pre-Exercise and Recovery Strategy? A Literature Review. And the authors there are Allison Schroeder and Thomas Best. That's also from 2015. So you notice that they're all, all three of these articles are from 15. The reason being that we wanted to have some type of, you know, consensus here, or, or we were looking for review articles. And there, to my knowledge, there's nothing more recent than that. I did look. There is a, a review article that is on myofascial release that is specifically, you know, the clinician is, is imparting this intervention. So, um, to save that for maybe another conversation and to, reduce the amount of hate mail that we get for this episode and just try to spread that out a little bit. We'll probably save that. But if anybody's curious, the title of that article is Effectiveness of Myofascial Release in Treatment of Chronic Musculoskeletal Pain, a Systematic Review. And that was published in September of 2017. And uh, just a little teaser, the conclusion would call into question the use of that modality for chronic pain. So I'll leave that there. And we'll come back to the topic at hand, which is self-myofascial release. And I think what we're going to do is start with the the Beardsley review as he outlines several proposed benefits of SMR. And we'll just kind of go through that stuff. Do you guys have any any pressing thoughts or comments up to this point? I think before we even start, it's good to back up and have a short conversation regarding when a review even needs to really transpire. And regarding this, you know, we're going to talk of this or talk about this to the frame of foam rolling. But I think for those listening, it is really good to just think of some of the things that are going to get said in terms of whatever intervention, because uh, before we started recording, I had mentioned to Quinn that if we took some of the same things we're going to say in this literature review, switched out self-myofascial release for a surgical intervention or something that one of our biases may go against, I have a feeling there may be a little bit more of an analytical eye because a lot of the issues that are going to come up are what is generated off of the narrative through the introduction and conclusions. And, a lot of what is claimed through all of this, you can say, yes, this does increase range of motion. But beyond that, anything where you start adding conjecture as to why it does, you're off the reservation on what the actual evidence says you can say. Yeah. Mike, you got anything? Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, I think at first, like, before we get into this review, we should look at maybe the history of foam rolling and some of the narratives that are supplied, because that's basically what Beardsley does as he goes through and talks about all the narratives we regularly hear, whether in the uh, athletic or fitness world or as clinicians as well. Um, so I know, like, um, I did a little bit of digging into this for the history of it. 
I found it interesting. It's pretty similar to a lot of different things. Like uh, one person has this idea and uh, kind of disseminates it out to some clinicians. It takes off pretty quickly. Um, from what I could tell, and I'll be interested if anyone writes in to say, well, they found something else about the history of it. But there was a person by the name of, and I'm going to butcher this name, Moshe Feldenkrais, maybe? Feldenkrais, yep, yep, Feldenkrais. There we go. Uh, created a method known as the Feldenkrais method. Uh, go figure. And basically, um, that involved utilizing a foam roller. This was around the 80s or so. And then they were further popularized by a clinician that trained under that person um, that worked with the Broadway dance troupe. And then um, from there, there was a publication written called Developing a Comprehensive Warm-Up um, and Conditioning Program for Performing Artists. And that kind of outlined like how to use a foam roller for this population of athletes. And the rest is basically history from there. It took off like wildfire, um, but there really wasn't any research that I'm aware of, um, like why we should be utilizing this or how to support some of the narratives that were getting disseminated to people. And then we've slowly been accumulating some studies, um, albeit not all of these studies that we can we can talk about this um, aren't of the greatest quality, um, but we're getting some information to build decisions off of. So some of the biggest uh, narratives that are given to people or given by clinicians are usually uh, athletes who utilize foam rolling will find improved range of motion, they could find improved performance and uh, often decreased delayed onset muscle soreness from training. And then there's another um, side of the narratives for the patient population world, which is that it can decrease pain pressure thresholds and then also perceived dysfunctions. So hopefully as we go through these studies, we can kind of discuss these narratives a little bit better. Yeah, awesome. And Bottom line is this, it, it's good that these things are being studied because it's like you guys have said, have been so popularized uh, in the media that people are, are using it. And so it's it always one of the issues when something blows up like that and then you try to retroactively find data about it. It just kind of, it, it skews things and maybe we see that as we go through. But they're going back <clears throat> to the Beardsley review and just kind of setting a, a baseline here. They define, well, the, the word fascia is inevitably going to come up here. So they define fascia as fibrous collagenous tissue, which is part of a body-wide tensional force, comma, transmission system. Um, so just kind of keep that in, in context. The mechanisms with which foam rolling works, I think we'll outline maybe a little later before we go through the proposed benefits. So, But essentially, they they did a systematic review and they found 22 studies. So there were 22 studies included in the in the Beardsley review and they looked at several different proposed benefits the the quality of these studies they used the the Pedro scale and they found the average quality was um i think it was moderate as i'm looking mm -hmm. here mm -hmm. it it, yeah. it kind of stayed which went in the low to high end range of moderate quality evidence for these 22 studies one of the mechanisms was acute effects on flexibility. And there were 11 studies included within that cohort or, or that, that proposed benefit. And the majority of them, I think seven, seven showed a significant, statistically significant, uh, difference in acute effects of flexibility after bouts of foam rolling. Three didn't. And then one after post hoc testing didn't either, but majority of the studies did show that after bouts of some type of prescribed regimen of, of either foam rolling or like stick massage, 
that you got a change in range of motion acutely. The, we're not, we can't go through all of the protocols because they're all different. And that's one of the issues with this is like the, how many sets of foam rolling, the cadence, the pressure, some of which didn't measure pressure at all, some of which did, but it was varied. The amount of time that they, they use, you know, all these things were different from study to study. So there was no standardization at all. All we can say is that it looks like it has some type of effect for whatever reason on increasing range of motion to a statistically significant degree. Then the question may become, well, does, how much does that matter? And where does that fit in clinically? Where is that of you? So I'll stop there. Mike, what are your thoughts on just the, the, ben- the benefit of acute range of motion changes after a bout of self myofascial release? Go for it, Mike. Yeah, I don't, you know, as Quinn said, the heterogeneity of the data that's collected, like as far as the, the protocols, we, we don't know. Like it's different from almost every single study. Um, and so that makes it very, very difficult to have replication studies done to see, well, are these actual meaningful effects or not? But just because I found a statistical effect, I don't think we can say that it has a clinical meaning. Um, like what does that translate to that you acutely increase range of motion in a joint? My argument would be that joint probably had that allowable range of motion already. You know, people were just having difficulties accessing it, which if we get them moving, probably going to get increased in obtainable range of motion as well. So I don't know, like, that we could say foam rolling is superior to anything other than just movement at this point. What I did find interesting, though, is like um, some of the studies found, I think it was... there were four studies that actually looked at uh, time parameters for how long the uh, flexibility was improved for. And it looked like up to 10 minutes. And then that, that was kind of it. Like it was gone after that. So what is meaningful that lasts only for 10 minutes? I'm not really sure. I, I don't know that we can say that it actually translates anything clinically or athletic performance wise. That's important. I think there's something that bears mentioning regarding the increase in range of motion, because when you look at the Bradbury Squires article they cite, it says increase in range of motion by 4.3% with a force of 13 kilograms um, and a range of motion increase of 10 to 16% with an average force of 21 kilograms. That's awesome, but it doesn't really tell me much because as soon as you frame it in terms of percentages, if I take you, you know, five degrees to six degrees, that's a, a, for playing percentages, that's a big increase. Whereas, you know, it doesn't tell me anything. It's just a percentage. I, I need to know actual range of motion increase for that to matter to me, especially when we know that basically our standard error measurement for range of motion is about five degrees. So if you show me a 10 degree or 10% increase and that amounts to four degrees, so what? It may be statistically significant from the way you did your data, but it doesn't tell me anything clinically as far as the utility of the intervention. Right. Would you guys say that so we're, we're kind of on what we're saying here is we don't, we, we're seeing the change. We don't yet know how much of that is associated with with just measurement error, number one. Number two, these studies, and they, they, they say this in the review, that you can't blind, none of these studies are blinded because it's very hard to do. The, the intervention group knows that they're foam rolling and the control group knows that they are not. Um, and, and so you, some type of non-specific effect that can't be necessarily accounted for as a mechanism of, of why there's an increased range of motion. There could be just, you know, repeated testing effects after you've got, it's just, there's a lot of factors here. So number one, 
if we're thinking about mechanisms, we're just not there yet. We're conceding to these changes in range of motion, or at least that they're observing these statistical differences. But to what extent it, it does a does a percentage change equate to a specific change in range of motion from a degree standpoint? How much of that is user error? And how much of that can be attributed to non the non-specific effects of getting a treatment? They say this in the review that you can't, none of these studies were blinded because it's very difficult to do that. You can blind group allocation, which a lot of most of the studies did not do, but it's hard to blind the participants because you know if you're getting foam rolling, you know if you're not. And so whatever non-specific effects occur when you just get something, I don't care if it's rubbing peanut butter on your quad with a spoon, some type of treatment, and then that equates to a kind of a small change. It's it's hard to know if it's the magic of foam rolling or if that could have been just anything. And I also think it's interesting that in most of these studies, they show an increased effect when you combine foam rolling with static stretching. And then so one of their hypotheses was, well, perhaps foam rolling and static stretching work by different mechanisms because we're, we're getting a combined effect. You see range of motion effect with both as a standalone, but you see a greater effect when you have both. So maybe they're working different ways, and this is affecting the Golgi tendon, the foam roller is, and the static stretching is affecting the stretch tolerance. But then they give a second hypothesis, which I buy into a little bit more, which is simply the group that gets more stuff gets a, has more of an effect. And you, yeah. you, you see this with A versus A plus B studies all the time where A plus B, it doesn't matter what the intervention is, they have a greater effect because they're just getting more of something. But I think it bears mentioning that any of those assumptions are conjecture because none of the systematic reviews actually looked at that. And if you look at any of the papers we have today, like, and this isn't a fault of the authors at all, it's just more the quality of study in dictates the level of systematic review or even narrative review than go out. But if you don't see a funnel plot looking for, you know, publication bias out of the results, that should be a yellow bordering on orange to red flag because you don't know if only positive studies are getting published. If you don't see a forest plot, you don't really have any kind of pooling of the data. But as we mentioned, there's such heterogeneity in the way that it's dosed out, but this really gets to the crux of a lot of interventions. And, and this isn't just foam rolling. It's this idea that my way works best. So I want to, well, you dose it for 45 seconds. I dose it for 47 seconds. So my extra two seconds is better than yours. I'm going to study it that way. So, you know, out of the gate, instead of looking at, are we increasing range of motion? Are we, you know, increasing the amount of pixie dust that the person is giving off post foam rolling, maybe we should look at doses first, because if you're going to do anything, you need to know what your optimal dose is. And, you know, trying to figure out 17 variables and outcome measures before you even know which way works better is stretching it a little bit. Yeah, they don't really have an understanding of dose response yet. The Beardsley mentions this, that, um, yes, there's a, obviously an acute increase in flexibility for whatever that may or may not mean. But there's no dose response effect that's visible yet in the data. So we can't say, like, is five seconds better than 10 seconds? It's better than 15 seconds. And how long, you know, we don't know yet. So it, it, you have to dose these... everything in prime numbers, Mike, because you're priming that's, the system. Yeah, that's right. Well, it, very and, true. All seven. <laughs> yeah, as Mike said, there's no, 
They, and they say that too, that I'm looking at, I think page six, the dose response of the acute effects of self-myofascial release on flexibility is still unclear. And then he, they cite a couple non-significant trends towards the longer the bout of foam rolling and or the more sets, the bigger the effect, but it's non-significant. It seems anywhere in between, uh, you know, 10 seconds and a minute of just it's some, some cadence. It doesn't seem to matter. And that's where I have trouble with when we have these discussions on, on the interwebs. And then the argument is, well, I think sometimes you just don't see the effect because people aren't, aren't doing it correctly. They need to, they need, you know, skilled teaching or coaching on how to use the implement correctly. And I would argue that this shows you that you actually don't. It's not skilled at all. And you could, you could pick your poison, how fast you want to do it, the pressure, be, and until the standardized and repeated and we're getting, you know, consistent results, it's up in the air with that stuff. Um, and let me ask you guys this, because there is, there does seem to be some type of an effect of, of an effect on range of motion. And we're, if we're talking clinically, and if you know somebody comes in the door who's just kind of married to these narratives and, you know, they're telling me, yeah, I spend however long on the foam roller before every training bout. I just feel like I need it before I can train all these things. I think maybe we'd all agree that it's hard to break somebody's, it's hard to go cold turkey with this stuff. And you don't want to be like, well, your ideas are stupid. That's not doing shit for you. So you should just lose it if they're kind of like have this crazy emotional tie. So do you guys start kind of like, well, you know, if you're, if you're going to do it, it really doesn't matter how you do it. And you should probably do it for the minimum effective dose that you feel this trend. And it should probably be pretty soon before you do the actual movement or it's, you're going to lose the benefits. Cause as Mike said, it's, it's only lasting for 10 minutes. Or do you guys just go, listen, dude, this is not really, it's probably not doing much at all in the long term. So like you should really consider losing it altogether. How do you guys approach uh, that type of thing? I think it depends on the person and, you know, we're back to the good old, it depends that comes up also frequently. And sometimes if I have someone who's entirely married to it, then I, I have to stepwise kind of bring it out. If I'm going to have that discussion, because, you know, if you come straight in bowl in the China shop and like, this is stupid, chances are that person's not going to trust you very much, especially if that's been instilled in them by someone that they do trust. And if it's the person who just does the like, well, I read this in a whatever article blog piece and what do you think about this? Well, then you can get more straight to the point out of it. And that's still person dependent. And I think a lot of the expertise, if, if you will, is the nuance of knowing how to skirt that. So, Right. Mike, what are your thoughts on that? How do you kind of approach that? with somebody who's got these beliefs instilled in them. I I agree with Derek. It depends on the person, the personality that you're discussing this with, um, how much they're buying into foam rolling and the narratives that have been supplied. You know, obviously we want to mitigate things like a backfire effect. So if we challenge it too strongly, they're going to hold on to the belief more, um, especially if therapeutic alliance isn't in place. But I honestly, my starting place with everyone is just asking them, well, what do you think about this? Like, why do you think you need to foam roll? Um, and I just try to figure out what narrative they've been supplied thus far. And then once I get an understanding of what their thought process is about it and the implement and what they think it's doing, that kind of gives me a gateway into saying, well, this is kind of what the research is showing. I understand that maybe what you've been told previously, but we don't have good substantial evidence to say that. And I do try to talk pretty bluntly about things like classical conditioning with people and say, you know, it, 
it may be feeling good and that's okay. You know, it's okay to say like, I like foam rolling because it feels good. We just want to make sure we're minimizing our time dedication to this implement. So we're not taking away from other things that we could be doing with longer term outcomes and results that we need to build towards your goal. If it's the patient population, I'm much less inclined to be a proponent of it because I don't want them to be classically conditioned unnecessary things. Um, if, and with that said, I'm, I, I can go ahead and guarantee I'm not going to be recommending foam rolling. I'm not going to be doing it in my clinic. But if an athlete says, I want to do this before I work out, then we do have that honest discussion of that's fine. You can do that. But just make sure you're not putting too much time towards it and be aware of what we have for evidence to say what it is and isn't doing. Yeah, take a similar approach. I think it's you're minimizing what you you're minimizing things to an extent, but not in a in a disrespectful or dis- dismissal way. As you guys have said, you don't want to just dismiss their okay. beliefs. But I say, you know what, it, it, you're you're free to do you're free to do whatever you want. I, it, you know, I know you have this thing going on, but to be completely honest, it's probably not going to have a whole lot of bearing on our long term outcomes. And so I'm not going to prescribe it specifically. And um, because of this, this, and this, and we'll go through some of these things in terms that, you know, they can understand and put into context. And you know, what I find anecdotally is that they themselves end up just trimming it out over time. Yeah. Like they start to realize, wow, I've been spinning my wheels with these types of implements that have only really been creating short term, whatever. And now I'm, now I'm seeing some progression as we've, you know, changed behavior and educated in these types of things. And yeah, I, I, it's like you, Mike, you, you just educate them and they can make their own decisions. But I find that most times they make the decision to do the things that seem to be working and giving them more of a kind of a long-term plan. It's weird. You know, I think a lot of people haven't heard the statement, you don't have to do this if you don't want to. Like it, it's almost, I, some people, I find it like it's almost alleviating for them or freeing for them. They're like, oh man, I've been wasting all this time on this implement and I, you're telling me I don't really need this it's, it's almost liberating, I guess would be the word. So are you guys of the opinion that we're just, we're still on acute range of motion. We're going to move on from this because we'll spend a, an entire show on five, you know, one mechanism out of five, but are you guys of the opinion, at least at this point that the changes in range of motion, forget mechanisms for a second, but just the degrees of change are not significant enough in regards to like effect size or clinical significance that you would then prescribe these things as an adjunct to your program. I have not had an athlete foam roll under my prescription of it probably in my career. Mike, where yeah, I'm not re- I'm I'm not recommending it at this time. Yeah. I, I don't think that we have enough evidence to say that it has any clinically relevant if we're talking patient population. Um, and if we're talking athletic, I don't think we have the evidence to say that it uh, means anything substantial for this couple of degrees of ranges of motion that well, we're getting. Okay. Yeah. And I'll just say for range of motion, let's just keep it from whatever range of motion means. Let's not even talk pain yet because we'll get there. But just just from a range of motion perspective, it sounds like we're all, we seem to be in agreement that movement but, you know, if you do 10 minutes of foam rolling, you would probably get the same short-term range of motion change with 10 minutes of the movement that you plan to train, and you would get practice with the movement. As opposed to yeah. 10 minutes of foam rolling, you still got to, like, warm up the mo- Like, you still have to go and do the movement. Let's say you're going to do a snatch or something like that. Foam rolling feels nice on your hips, but you then you still have to grab the empty bar and start warming up your snatch. So you've added time when you could just go to the barbell 
And even if that first snatch or the first 10 feel like crap, like who cares? That's just, you do, do more of them. Your body, you'll, you'll find that inflection point where you start to turn a corner and your body's priming for activity, but you haven't had to do a non-specific thing that doesn't seem to be giving you an added effect, like more so than, you know, than just doing the movement. There was one study before we move on to range of motion. There was one study I want to touch on because I hear it all the time. It's the grieve, the grieve at all from 2015, where the participants took a tennis ball. They, they measured the mm-hmm. sit and reach test. They took a tennis ball and rolled the bottom of their foot and then tested the sit and reach. And there was a statistically significant difference in hamstring range of motion. And I've heard this is the only study that I'm aware of that looked at this. And I've heard this, people have run with this study, fulfilling all of their favorite narratives like um, fascial lines and just regional interdependence and all of these things. And we just got to, number one, keep in mind that if we're, if we're truly trying to be evidence-informed, we always look at the totality of evidence. And this is one study, and it was 15 participants in each group. So number one... There shouldn't be any conclusions. Even if you, even if the study was awesome and we're like, it's to our biases, we shouldn't be touting something that's got this one study behind it and then putting these crazy narratives. Uh, number two, if you look at the effect size, it's very small. And I think it was, I think the effect size R was 0.21, which is trivial. It's, that's actually categorized as trivial. That's not a word that I'm putting towards it. And the, the standard deviations were like, it was like 30, maybe six centimeters of improvement of range of motion with a standard deviation of nine point something. So the, the data is not great and it's not nearly enough to fulfill a narrative like some type of fascial line because they didn't look at any of that. There was no ultrasound imaging. There was no, uh, it was just a sit and reach. So another example of, of statistical significance then being extrapolated to a narrative that fits something that's already kind of packaged and commercialized. That's very easy to kind of like retroactively throw some evidence at. Uh, so just kind of with, with I guess the lesson is when people are reading systematic reviews, don't just read the synopsis of the systematic review. The whole point is that the, they're putting the articles in front of your face for easy delineation, but go through these references, you know, and start to pick out some of these narratives that you see. And that was one that I wanted to touch on. Any other thoughts on acute effects of on range of motion with self-myofascial release, at least in this Beardsley, Beardsley article? So not directly on that, but I, I do want to mention this because what you just said had a really good point. And on top of that, if you are seeing a forest plot when you're reading a systematic review or meta-analysis and you see one that's just way off the reservation, whether that one confirms or dispels whatever your opinion is, that may be the one you want to pull because they obviously did something a little different. And, you know, sometimes that's where you see, well, I've seen it once where it was the authors of the systematic review misinterpreted the data and it wasn't a fault of the authors. It was just the data was presented a little bit weird in that article. And and that's your outliers are a lot of times the ones you want to go look at because it's what they're doing different out of it that may have some implication on it. And that's not to say it's better, worse, it's different. And I think a lot of times we need to move away from this like better, worse into this is a data point and how we are going to interpret that data point. And what does it add to the conversation as a whole? 
Mike, any thoughts on any, any parting thoughts on range of motion acute? Yeah. I mean, I, thus far, like having read static stretching research and then reading foam rolling research, it just seems very similar, like a very small increase acutely in ranges of motion. And we've slowly realized more and more about static stretching that it was mostly just improving someone's tolerance to a position or stretch. I, I And I know we'll probably get into mechanisms in a second, but I, I feel like that's very similar to what we're seeing in the data for foam rolling. It's just improving your tolerance to a range of motion that's getting measured, but it's not anything long-lasting thus far, and we don't really know what it means, if anything. And just jumping ahead in the Beardsley article, because they actually put a chronic effects on flexibility as one of their last... I'm just going to... We're just going to do that now because it's the easy one. There is no... There is no... Yeah, yeah. That it... Um, has any None. type of lasting or chronic effect on, on range of motion. As you said, Mike, most of the studies, you see the effects start to dwindle away after about 10 minutes, you know, after the initial bout and, um, nothing to say that it lasts path beyond that or for weeks at a time or any one bout's going to, going to somehow mold the structure. So, um, yeah. there's nothing there. Is that not, not yet at least. If you're hanging as an athlete, if you're wondering like what the takeaway from this is, if you're hanging your hat on spending 10 minutes a day on foam rolling because it improves your range of motion, you don't have to do that. You can you can stop. We don't have sufficient evidence to say that that has any meaning, meaningful long-term changes and there's better alternatives to do with your time. It feels good, though, Mike. Well, yeah, if you want to do it because it feels good, then knock yourself out. But yeah. I think one of the most difficult things to do as a clinician sometimes is addition by subtraction. And you'll have, whenever we have an athlete come in, uh, most of the time we want to add something to what's going on. You know, you have this going on where you should start doing this. And there has to be the same consideration that sometimes it's not you need to start doing this. It's you may need to stop doing this and, and or you may need to focus on something a little bit different where there may just need to be some time and you chilling out. And, and I think one of the most difficult things as a clinician is to say, this is going to get better on its own. You don't really need me. And that really takes some, but they need the foam roller. Yeah. That's, but you know, it's because someone said they needed it. You know, this has been around what, 25 years, 30 years. Like what do you guys I, think? I, what do you think about self-efficacy? Because I've heard it said that the foam roll actually improves self-efficacy. Derek, what do you think about, I feel like it's, you're just trading. You're trading the clinician yeah. for the foam roller. What do you think about that? Yeah. Um, I, I think you could definitely say that. and But still, like, I don't want my athletes thinking they need anything that doesn't add utility to what's going on. And, you know, if we broad frame this out, it's like, I would love to go to rural West Virginia and tell some of the farmers I grew up with, Hey man, you know what you need to do every day to make you a better farmer? You need to go foam roll, get out in the cornfield with your foam roller. Or, you know what? Why don't we just use an ear of corn because it's already textured. Go pop some popcorn on your IT band. <laughs> I mean, All right. the heat release from the tissue, if we can get that heat release high enough, we may actually pop some popcorn on your IT band. Then not only do you get more pliability out of it, you get lunch or at least a snack. Gold. Save, save, yeah. save those because we've got more mechanisms. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's talk about um, athletic performance. So, so self-myofascial release, its effects on athletic performance. We're still in the Beardsley article. 
it doesn't seem to have much of an effect at all, at least from a negative standpoint or much of a positive. There were, there were like one study, one or two studies in either direction where one maybe showed an actual increase in, in performance. We say performance, like maybe, um, some type of jump parameter or something like that or force production and then decrease. But as by and large, it doesn't seem to have an effect at all, which then you're, you can spin it two ways. You can say, well, it increases range of motion and it doesn't impede performance. So it would be a viable option as a warm-up strategy. Uh, the other side of it would be, if it has no effect, why are you doing it? Let's all stop there. Mike, what are your thoughts on, we're just talking athletic performance as a standalone and maybe like compared to static stretching because of the evidence showing that static stretching may actually decrease top end power output. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just a, a net neutral, right? Like it's not doing anything positive. It's not doing anything negative. So I think it does become like, well, why are we doing this? And if you're, if you're reverting back to range of motion as the argument for why you should do it, this, I haven't seen any evidence that says that means you know how to access that new found fun range of motion uh, into anything meaningful for athletic performance. It really is the range of motion. If you're not going to be able to utilize it. And, you know, some of the things we know, if we start getting this increased range of motion, you could, and I understand here, I am out on a limb with conjecture, but if you have that, you could predispose yourself to more of a strain type mechanism to where you're getting more out in front of yourself when you're running or kicking or doing whatever. So we can't say that. We don't have any evidence with which to take that step. But you know, whenever we're generating our narrative, we'd like to favor the positive side of it while forgetting if And if we're going to really have some utility in this, then let's figure out both sides of the equation. Yeah. And before I forget, I want to go back to something that I said and, and call myself on something. I, cause I'm biased, obviously. And, and I said that I feel that if you're just trading the clinician's hands for a foam roller, you're not actually increasing self-efficacy. That, that same thing could be said about an exercise. You know, if I say this exercise is what you need to feel better, you need this exercise. It could be the same. So if I'm going to, if I'm going to have that criticism on foam rolling, I better have it on my bias, which is, which is also exercise. I just wanted to throw that out there as, as well. And, preemptively in case somebody calls me on it, which would be valid. I mean, well, I, I, think, I think foam rolling falls in the category of exercise in the broadest sense of it. I mean, yeah. what are you doing? You're doing some motion with some external force going in. Sounds like an exercise to me. It's just, we like these big self myofascial release, just how much utility does that exercise actually have? And this evidence would say not that much. I think it gets into the narrative that's the issue with this, right? Like if you're saying you need to go foam roll because you're releasing adhesions via self-myofascial release and your adhesions are causative of your pain, that's a whole other issue in and of itself for why a clinician shouldn't recommend foam rolling to a patient. Okay, so summarize up to this point. <clears throat> Self-myofascial release may have a small short-term effect on range of motion. Whether that is, whether that should, uh, you know, be something that you prioritize is, is kind of on you based on the discussion and based on the data. No real effect on performance. It doesn't seem like. So again, like Mike said, net neutral. So let's move on here to this one, which has always been a gray area for me to even try to kind of grasp the narrative around it, which is acute effects on blood flow. Uh, or as they say in, in Beardsley's article, arterial stiffness and vascular endothelial function. So the whole blood flow thing, 
we had shared an article. Mike, can you talk a little bit about about blood flow because it, with with foam rolling? Because I think inevitably it comes down to a comparison. Is it more? Is it first of all is it providing? Is the blood flow? Why does that matter? What does that do? The benefit of it, and then is it providing you somehow more blood flow or or better whatever than movement or or exercise or whatever? Can you talk a little bit about that? Are we talking about just in the athletic world for blood flow, or are we talking about what the narratives are spun for healing parameters in the cl- uh, clinical world? Let's go. Let's go. Athletic, healthy world first. Okay. Yeah, I I don't really know, man. I mean, <laughs> the yeah. benefits of blood flow are that you're uh, prepping yourself for some type of physical activity. There's probably going to be an increased stressor to what you currently were at before you did some type of thing to improve blood flow to the area. So it's just prepping you, you know, the argument can be spun that you're prepping your nervous system, you're prepping your muscles to do increased stress to an area. Um, but I think the issue with this is, is we don't have any good evidence to say that it's more meaningful than just moving because obviously movement equally will increase blood flow to an area. So I don't think it adds anything to say it has more efficacy, that foam rolling has more efficacy over just doing dynamic movement. What about in the injury rehab pain world? Is it different or is it now just more the narratives were just more sensitive in that respect? Yeah, I think it's a similar, similar discussion, right? If we're talking about healing parameters, I don't think I'm not aware of any evidence to say that foam rolling has efficacy for expedition of healing parameters. Um, and I, I, for pain, that's one other issue of itself. Like, um, and we'll get at this discussion when we talk about the narrative for delayed onset muscle soreness, because that's on the spectrum of quote unquote pain, right? Um, so it's just altering sensitization in an area or perception of tissue in an area, which then becomes, well, if we can get that outcome on its own without this added implement, then why do we need it? And I don't think there's any research to support this says that it's better than again, just patient education and movement when you're dealing with pain based, uh, symptoms. Derek. In the in, here in the Beardsley article, we're, we're on blood flow. Back to blood flow here. The it did it showed that foam rolling may have or was found to lead to an acutely, and they say improved arterial function, but it seemed to affect arterial function measured with a Doppler. What does that mean? There's a lot of mites in the paragraph where they're discussing it, and I, I think even to say that it does may be a stretch because what I see might have arisen from reductions in muscle tension or might also lead to observed reduction in arterial stiffness. That, that seems to be taking the data and throwing out there and saying this is what might have happened. And, and that's not necessarily anything they can say definitively according to what they found. It's this is This is our thoughts on this. And the problem is when we see things like this, a lot of times when we're reading that might gets dropped and all of a sudden it's proposed that a improvement in arterial stiffness have arisen from reductions in smooth muscle tension, which reads entirely different from proposed that an improvement in arterial stiffness might have arisen from reductions in smooth muscle tension. It's like, you know, if somebody's like your significant other might have cheated on you, oh, that bitch cheated. Like you, you completely missed the might word in that. 
And it's, it's the exact same thing. And everyone, you two are laughing right now, but I guarantee you if someone came up to you and said, hey, they might have cheated, both of you would be like, one, like I guarantee you our arterial stiffness would go up, our cortisol levels would go up. You know, it, that's a that's a mighty big mite. <laughs> All right. It was a great, great show, guys. Well, uh, <laughs> that's our, this is our last episode, actually. Well, there's one more mite in there, and it's in that same paragraph suggested that the pressure applied by the foam roller might trigger the release of plasma nitric oxide concentrations. You know, these are just, it's a big, you know, we didn't measure, they didn't measure that. So this is just the authors postulating. We're looking, you know, we're just, we're just pontificating. But when you read that, like you said, Derek, a lot of people will read that and say, oh, okay, well, then it increases blood flow by releasing plasma nitric oxide concentration or like increasing that. So that's cool. And then that's the narrative that's kind of cut. No, 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 no. We need to, we need to look at that. We also need to look at if the change in blood flow it all equates to some type of, of change in performance or activity or, or whatever. And how does that compare to like what we've said over and over so far is just movement. Um, there was one down there, same paragraph, two types of, they, they compared normal tensive and hypertensive patients and they looked at the changes in, in blood flow and they said the authors ascribed ascribed it to the actions of plasma nitric oxide following the elevated shear stress on the walls of the vasculature, which uh, I don't know how you, I don't know how you measure that. Um, but I'm not, I don't think that they looked at the shear stress. I'll really have to dive into that, that article, but I'm not sure they were looking at shear stress of the wall. So it's just, just be careful with the mechanisms, right? Said, I, go ahead, Mike. I was just going to, like, I was just thinking to myself, it's interesting that we're talking about improving blood flow, but there's actually a pretty well, uh, or not pretty well, but a, a good modality out there as clinicians that we utilize, uh, blood flow restriction. So, and we have a good, decent amount of scientific research to say why that's effective in non-mobile situations. So it's just interesting to me, the parallels of how the narrative can be spun between increasing versus decreasing blood flow. Isn't that the same as like inflammation? We want to increase inflammation to expedite healing we, or to jumpstart the process. We want to decrease it to, you know, very I, much so. The whole blood flow thing for me, at least with the self myofascial release, is kind of a shoulder shrug. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's like, at least with range of motion, we can talk about it from a movement standpoint or performance biomechanics, whatever. But I just, I don't know where this goes. And I think that's probably where they're at too in this review. It's only one paragraph. Yeah, yeah, it seems like, hey, there's two studies on this. We're going to yeah, make a comment, but there's not enough to really go anywhere with it. And on a similar note, hopefully this next mechanism is the same regards to the, the time that we talk about it, but it's the acute effects of acute effects on autonomic nervous system activity. And the the question will be, how, what are we defining as autonomic nervous system activity? What does that mean? In the, in the Kim et al. study from 2014, they looked at, at serum cortisol concentrations and, and healthy individuals. And the, they had foam rolling as a part of the treatment, but they also had walking. Um, and the whole thing was like reducing cortisol and, and, and reducing perceived stress. But I don't, I don't think that you can attribute that to, to just the foam rolling. Um, and so, well, and then how are you measuring, why is that equating to autonomic nervous system activity? Go ahead, Mike. 
I was, I was just like chomping at the bit to say the best part of that chem study was that rest equally showed a decrease in cortisol levels as foam rolling. So if I have my options, I'm just going to go lie down for 30 minutes and get a, get a good nap in. Yeah, walking walking for 30 minutes in high heels is hard work, Mike. That's what they did. I don't they? disagree. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and this is where I'm always like... For the, we go back to the person who's kind of married to this thing and say, well, I really like to do it on my rest days. Do, do it, do whatever you want. You know, on your rest day, I want you to, I want you to chill out and get your mind off of training anyway. And if you're going to watch TV and you want to just move around a little bit, Mike, I've heard you say this, that it's probably not the, the foam roller on your tissue. It's probably just the act of like the slow movement of the foam roller where you're just kind of moving around and it's like, it's a little bit of work. So like Derek, you said it was exercise and it is, um, and so it's like one of those things where people ask me about massage and I'm like, if it relaxes you and you want to spend your money on it, you do you, you know, it's not yeah. going to be a prescription that we talk about outlining. This is what you should do on your active rest day, because my outline to you is going to be get, get your sleep and, and eat your food. And then that, and that's good. But, um, they cite a couple more articles on autonomic effects of autonomic nervous system activity and heart rate variability was one um they heightened they say that heightened parasympathetic activity is, is equated to a kind of like reduced heart rate reduced blood pressure and increased endorphin levels increased heart rate variability which this means that you know you've got options your your system is kind of responding well to the task um but that's kind of it it's this, well, it's this headline of autonomic nervous system activity, and then it's just poorly defined. I think to give a shout out to another podcast, if the audience would really like to hear a good discussion on heart rate variability, they should go check out the Everything Hurts podcast because it's two clinicians who actually do research on heart rate variability. And it's kind of hilarious to hear them talk about how poorly most heart rate variability research is actually done. And so normally when I see that as an outcome measure, it's, it doesn't really carry much weight to me strictly because uh, I guess I've heard people with um, skin in the game talk about how poorly most of the research is discussed and you know that's my bias out of that yeah mike you have any thoughts on on the effects of smr on autonomic nervous system activity no but i (laughs) i wish i had more to say about it but uh i don't really see why anyone would use a narrative to rationalize the use of a foam roller for that thus far on what we see in the research literature. Yeah. I don't know, man. I, again, if the question is, Hey, what should I do after training? Chill out. If you can go home, sleep, eat food, you'll be fine. If you just, and then if you come to me and you say, I know you said chill out and I was just hanging out watching TV and I just started to jump on the roller and, you know, while watching Netflix, I'll, I'll just give a, I'll say cool thumbs up and you know, that'll, that'll be the end of it. But I don't, I don't see, like you said, Mike, much added, there's no narrative there. We ha- we don't have one. It would just be, it would just be kind of made up. So just try to figure out how to relax, meditate, write in your journal, compassionate touching. Probably, <laughs> I mean, probably will be much yeah. more beneficial. Please, please start that as a new certification. Quinn Hennock's compassionate touching. I mean, it probably has more efficacy <laughs> if you trust the person and it's affectionate and i'll leave it at that but 
yeah, you probably would have better recovery strategies with such uh, intervention. Yeah, I heard. I don't know who it was, but they said I was. It was like a Facebook post, and they said the most. And they they were a PT. They said the most skilled manual therapy I've ever gotten was from my wife, who is not a. Yeah, I say that. I say that all the time. Yeah. Okay. Let's. We're moving on here to a little bit bigger of a topic, maybe kind of a equal to range of motion is the acute effects of self myofascial release on delayed onset muscle soreness. Um, some would also extrapolate that and the other two reviews kind of do on recovery like DOMS and recovery are synonymous, which I don't, we probably will agree that they're not. And then how do we define recovery? But let's just talk DOMS, delayed onset muscle soreness. There seems to be some type of, a, of an effect when you foam roll at various points after a, a program that's made you sore. So they have these people do like 10 by 10 back squats. So they, they try to elicit the late onset muscle soreness and they seem to find that the group that has, that does bouts of foam rolling have report decreased DOMS up to a 72 hour period. Uh, I'll stop there. Derek, what are your thoughts on the effects of self-myofascial release on delayed onset muscle soreness? So I think with this, what did the control group do? Did they actually have an intervention or was it just chilling out? Um, because this gets back into your something tends to have an effect. So if they were just counting clouds in the sky versus the other group, then you know we have to factor that in and then we have to get into is doms a good thing or a bad thing and this gets into the is inflammation a good thing or a bad thing is it good to be able to decrease doms and train through it or could we be causing some long-term repercussions if we do and we don't have answers to those things but in the same side of it i think this gets into this constant theme we see where we want short-term reward versus long-term gain you know yeah we could put a femoral nerve block in an acl make them feel good immediately after surgery but long term it hurts them yeah we can do whatever and uh it's apparently molly doesn't like uh femoral nerve blocks after acl reconstructions um we can do anything and get this short-term effect out of it but what's the consequence long-term and if we're really in this for long-term interventions short i mean doms goes away <laughs> it's it's we all know that delayed onset muscle soreness goes away and i think at some point it almost becomes like i've joked with patients before i think if i woke up one day and wasn't sore anywhere that would be the day i'd die just because i'm so used to that being a part of my training paradigm so maybe a foam roller will kill me if I start getting on one and I wake up not sore anywhere. Yeah, I, I think because uh, I agree with all of that. Like it comes out when you frame it. Like I, I was having this conversation with an athlete the other day about delayed onset muscle soreness. I mean, if you're wrecked, like just completely wrecked for the whole week, you we probably need to have a discussion of volume and intensity parameters of training rather than how much time should you be on the foam roller. But otherwise, if it's just a couple like 48 hours. <laughs> Sorry about that, guys. Um, dogs don't like whatever's going on outside. But uh, if it's just like 48 hours, which is most cases of delayed onset muscle soreness, hell yeah, you got your badge of honor for training your ass off. Good job. But what's the big deal? So I don't, I, I don't understand like why we have to worry about we have to mitigate this suddenly and get a, get you on the foam roller. Uh, be proud of your badge of honor for training your ass off in the gym. 
Well, yeah, and again, the protocols here were purposely trying to make them sore. So, yes, you know, if, if you want to go do 10 by 10 when you're not prepared for it, like you said, Mike, you, you live with the consequences. So the what I would be interested to see, because I'm in the opinion that you guys work with athletes and we know that over the course of time, over the course of a 10-year training career, if you can do a little bit more work over time, usually that equates to you're better than you were previously. Obviously, those things need to be undulated within your within your parameters and these types of periodized these types of things. But we're, we're looking short term things that can uh, allow you to get a more quality work in like that. In, it perks my ears. But with this specifically, I would like to see comparisons with uh, steady five minutes of steady state cardio. Now, what's your perceived delayed onset muscle soreness? Or how about an education program like what you just or what you and Derek just said? Like, what happens when we just tell the athlete that this is normal, dude? It's not a big deal. It's DOMS. It's like it's going to go away. Now, where is their perception of their DOMS? You know, like 24 hours after that conversation or something like that. So it goes back to what Derek said. You got something and then it changed your perception. Is that, is that something special with the foam roller or is it, is it just getting something? And if we could get something with just putting a hoodie and sweatpants on and getting on the bike and moving our body and, oh yeah, I feel a little bit better. I can get a little bit of work in today. Um, again, you know, it's a shoulder. Well, think it's a shoulder about it. Like, for me. it. Well, if we're going to use the argument for DOMS for training more, then we should be talking about performance. And we already mentioned earlier that it doesn't seem to have much of an effect on performance. So if that's offset of DOMS is going to allow you to train more, what you would want to see is you have these people do this and then you max test them versus the control group at whatever time point, And you should see that that allowed them or, or you track their volume of what they're able to handle. So it's saying it decreases DOMS doesn't tell me anything about performance. It just tells me it decreases DOMS. And Quinn, to your point, uh, I I just thought of this. I don't think maybe you did say it and I didn't hear you, but there was a study. I forget what year it was. It must have been after this review, but Morales et al. looked at. 10 minutes on a cycle erg versus uh, foam rolling and cycle erg was, if not equal to slightly better than foam rolling, if I recall, recall correctly. So in DOMS or I mean, range yeah. of motion? Um, it may, was it range of motion for Morales? I it might've been range of motion. I think so. But that's, that's what I'm, that's the kind of stuff that I, that I'm kind of looking at. And, but again, it's, I agree with all of you guys. I, it's going to be, it's one of just one of those things where if you, if that's what you do, then that's what you do. Um, we're probably just going to better dose our training next time. Uh, it's probably more of a, of a, of a long-term plan. If you're an athlete, what, if, what, if, what do you guys think about this? You're an athlete who's doing two a days, or you've got a season where you got back-to-back games, or you maybe you're in a tournament, you got a morning, you got a game this morning, you got a game this evening. If you guys win that type of thing, does that change your approach with this stuff at all? <laughs> It doesn't change mine with my athletes, but if an athlete, like if an athlete were going to say, Hey, I have this tournament this weekend. What do you think about this? And be like, well, it shows short-term effects. So if you want to do it, it's, it's well within the means of where you could get some benefit out of it. It's just not going to do anything for us in the long term. Yeah. Quinn, you were right. It's, it was range of motion for that study, but, um, I would be, I would love to see that study. I hope it gets done in the future. Just dynamic movement or, um, 
harder respiratory training for 10 minutes versus foam rolling if we get similar effects and perception? Because what are we ultimately getting at with delayed onset muscle soreness? It's just your perception of how the tissue feels. We don't, that I'm aware of, have any studies correlating amount of tissue damage from exercise-induced muscle damage correlated to your perception of how that tissue feels. So a lot of these studies use like pain pressure thresholds or numeric rating scales for pain. So we can't say, well, if you're a five out of 10 on numeric rating scale, that that means you damage 50% of that muscle tissues fibers. You know what I'm saying? Like there's no correlation that I'm aware of there whatsoever. So we're just, well, if anything, there's the, there's the opposite of that correlation, because if we look at some of the evidence for hamstring strains, which you're tearing a muscle, more severe version of DOMS, we know there's no correlation between the MRI studies of severity and return to sport. Right. So, like, we actually have some evidence to the contrary. Granted, it's on a different scale, but that evidence is out there that kind of flies in the face of the degree of damage correlates with actual perception. Right. And that's why I started with this on uh, the topic of framing it and how we frame it to our athletes or patients with with DOMS is because it's all on the same spectrum, right? This is exercise-induced muscle damage. Where is the demarcation line for this isn't just DOMS, we now have a strain? I would argue that's variable for a lot of people. Yeah. The couple of those studies were very similar in the protocol. It was a 10 by 10 back squat at 60% of the subjects, one rep max, and they were they were doing repeated bouts of, of rolling immediately post post 24 hours and post 48 and then post 72 and it looks like there's a convergence point where after after the 48 hour mark and up to the 72 hour mark you start to see no change which is consistent with what we're talking about um but then there was another study that they had 10 by 10 stiff leg deadlifts with a kettlebell which sounds fun and then probably wrecked their hamstrings but i and i've heard of this study but when i was looking at it they actually didn't they didn't even test after 60 minutes of the 10 by 10, they only tested immediately post at 10 minutes, 30 minutes and 60 minutes after doing the 10 by 10. And then the narrative was that it has some type of effect. It improves recovery, but that they didn't actually measure another bout of doing something to say that they improved their recovery. And they also didn't even, they didn't measure uh, pain. So it was really, it was really weird. What they did measure was, oh, they did, they measured pain pressure, pressure pain thresholds up to 30 minutes, or there was a difference up to 30 minutes, but after 60 minutes, there was no difference. But I was really, I was really awed that they were including that, or it was really odd to me that they were including that in the DOMS conversation because they only measured an hour after they did the workout. So that's not, there wouldn't be DOMS at that point, And then it was done. So I just thought it was a weird study. It didn't, it didn't really tell us much. And I've seen that one get cited a lot. I hadn't actually looked at the protocol, but it just didn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, well, I know I'm not signing up for these studies because 10 by 10 just sounds yeah. horrible. <laughs> yeah. I, I think you would be hard pressed to find many trained athletes sign up for those studies just because they would know what they're getting into. <laughs> well, my thing is like, you, you'd have to pay me a lot of money, right? Yeah. I just, if they did, they did 10 by 10. If I'm that, if I'm the participant, I'm kind of pissed off because you're done with me after an hour of this, and I'm not. I'm like feeling the effects of this thing three days later. Oh, you're no data. Yeah. <laughs> it was really, it was really weird. So okay, um, just summarizing, Dom's. I guess it's another shoulder shrug type of deal. Um, you don't want to over over activate your traps doing that, Quinn. 
Yeah, you better go foam roll uh, yeah. real quick. No, the the technique for the trap is the ball against the wall. The baseball. Baseball, right? Ooh, that's a good one. A cute, okay, so that might that might actually be all the mechanisms or all the proposed benefits. I want to touch on a couple a mechanism that I'm hearing frequently, and I want to get your all's thoughts on it. It's they act, the Beardsley article actually addresses it in the intro, and it is discussing Golgi tendon. Mm. Because here's the deal: I think you, you guys have seen this probably. This pattern is like when you when you were latched on to something like let's say foam rolling or self myofascial release, and then a popular narrative kind of continues to get debunked and it's like, ah, what else can we, what else can we find? And it seems like the whole breaking up scar tissue and these and releasing like structure and this type of thing is being, is starting to drift away because we're seeing evidence that that's probably not happening. And now I'm hearing more and more about this Golgi tendon reflex arc. That is one potential proposed mechanism or it's stimulating some of the mechanoreceptors. And that's why we're getting this, um, reducing firing rate or reducing efficiency because one of those studies showed that a, there was a after foam rolling there was a decreased emg during a dynamic lunge so the thought, <laughs> I, don't even, I don't i don't even want to open up that can of no, let's open it real quick let's open it because so. because that's going to be the deal it's like foam rolling increases your muscular efficiency so what they did was they used surface emg so surface EMG, problem one. surface EMG. Yeah. Problem one. They measured EMG. They uh, it was like vastus lateralis, VMO, whatever. The, it, one of these studies in the in the Beardsley in the Cheatham article, and then the EMG, and then they foam rolled, and the EMG of those muscles was lower during the post test, and then so their conclusion was that it increased muscular efficiency of the movement because the same task with the same amount of force generation had a lower EMG. Um, and then the, yeah. the proposed mechanism is potentially this Golgi tendon reflex arc. Once again, it's taking some data and trying to generate a narrative off of it. And I know we constantly sound like Debbie Downer and like talking about a lot of this stuff, but it, it's a big game of you can't say that. And that's how we get closer to figuring out what we actually can say, even though that tends to get into more ambiguity than it does insight. Um, surface EMG for this, you're not going to be able to garner anything about your Golgi tendon organ really out of that, um, or like the efficiency of the muscle that's pretty much been debunked. I think actually just this week, there was an article published yeah. by Vygotsky, and I'm sure, Andrew, I'm sorry, I'm butchering your name, and Greg Lehman. Oh, yeah. Oh, sweet. Yeah. Awesome. Go me, um, with a redneck accent, no less. Um, talking about some of the pitfalls of using EMG for this, and I think that's it's a lot of conjecture, is what it comes down to, and it displays our propensity for wanting to use fancy words. And I'm sure neurophysiological is going to come up here in a minute or two. And I was really trying to avoid that. Yeah. And, but it's another one of those polysyllabic words that doesn't really tell us too much because almost everything causes a neurophysi neurophysiological change. It's that, you know, great philosophical statement. You can never stand in the same river twice because it's always moving. Well, your neurophysiological system is always changing. So you're always undergoing some type of neurophysiological change. Maybe the episode title could be "You Can Never Lay on the Same Foam Roller Twice" or something like that. 
It's too meta. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm reading the, the paragraph that I'm talking about is on page three, right before the method section. And I'm, I'm just reading through this and I'm trying to kind of play devil's advocate here. And I'm thinking like, all right, how can, how can we spin this? It almost sounds like some type of post activation potentiation or so, some type of like that, because it's there. It, we're saying pressure applied. I'm reading this from the article pressure applied to mechanoreceptors might stimulate the nervous system and thereby lead to reduced muscular tension. And, and so that's also potentially, and then this phenomenon has been attributed. This phenomenon that might happen has been attributed to the activation of mechanoreceptors, which are believed to inhibit the central nervous system. Um, and they cite some, they cite a massage article where that somehow there's an H reflex and a decrease in, in central nervous system activity. And then, then, then they correlate that to the reduced EMG findings in that lunge. And so it almost like it calms you down, but makes you perform with less, with less tension. With this Hold on. Didn't you guys just say I'm too meta? Because this sounds pretty meta. <laughs> I, I have so many questions. Right. Like, how are we defining and measuring muscle tension? Like, I, uh, 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 it looks like by EMG. Hmm. <laughs> Surface EMG. So we've come full circle, guys. So okay. I just don't even know where to start. Like, there's so many, like. There's so many narratives and it's all conjecture for the most part thus far. Like if, if you read through this, they present several different models of thinking and it ultimately comes down to, we don't really know, but maybe this is happening. So let's use foam rolling. All right. Okay. Well, so what if somebody's, what if somebody's knee, I'm going to go back to the lunge example and their, their knee hurts and, or their quad hurts and they have, increased muscular tension measured via emg in their quad and and so then they foam roll decreased muscular tension measured by emg so you've you've sent a sensory impulse or sensory stimulus to the nervous system it's changed the muscular tension maybe even changed the fear avoidance to the movement so could you say, like, what if the lunge or a eccentric step down was part of your program to, to strengthen the quad tendon or whatever, and then you programmed short bouts of foam rolling five to ten seconds in between your sets to knock down that perceived tension and potentially actual EMG reading? Well, I think we'd first need to define normative and abnormal parameters of muscle tension. So... If it's measuring on the EMG within set parameters of normative, and I'm using quotes for those that are uh, watching this on YouTube, um, then like, what does it matter? Like, it's are they stuck in a contracture? Because that's going to be an issue, and they but they might have maybe there's an underlying upper motor neuron lesion that's an issue. I don't know. I I don't think that someone having and then the whole other issue of this is like my thought processes is how are we linking any of this to muscle tension to perception of pain. Well, it just leads to more questions for me. Could so measure their measure both. So they've got one, they have only one affected leg measure the measure the muscular tension during the before and after the lunge of the non affected leg or, you know, before and after with the lunge and the, and the foam rolling a non affected affected. And then you'll see the difference. So they're their own control. You see a decrease in EMG with what we already 
potentially know is a decrease in, in pain perception, potentially, to measure that too. And then your narrative is, if this... Is short, it? If this, Do we have the... I'm just... Listen. <laughs> if this short I've not out, seen that study, so... <laughs> no, well, no. So, I, yeah, I'm making shit up. <laughs> Join the club of the other people. Uh, that this, so this is, is this going to? Okay, this is not, this not what we do with surface. even things that we want to do. It's like take bits. Okay, education's cool. I like heavy, slow resistance training. I'm going to do both. But there's not one a study that has both really nice protocols. So this is what we're doing. If if it has some type of change in pain pressure threshold, we've seen that with other with the other studies. But so then your narrative is listen. If, if it decreases your um, perceived pain or apprehension to the exercise that I want you to do, that's ultimately going to strengthen the tissues and degrade your exposure. If you want to do like short five to 10 second bounce to kind of just, you know, when I hit my knee on the edge of a desk and I rub it really hard and it feels a little bit better, it's just kind of like that. You know what I mean? I call that major, major pain tactics. Yeah. Uh, let me, you know, show me your finger. A little diffuse, noxious inhibitory control. This is all I'm saying. I'd rather just break people's fingers. That would be easier. Oh, that was one thing I wanted to say too with this stuff was like, what if I wish they need to do a comparison with foam rolling with pain pressure threshold or like, no, no, roll in the bottom of your foot, measure your hamstring length. And then the other group gets punched in the face and then they measure their sit and reach. I want to do the punching. Dude, I guarantee you, you get flexible after you get punched in the face. Oh, like, well, if you get hit on the button, your tone is going to go way down. Really I was about fast. to say, like, we knock you out. Is that similar to just like anesthesia studies? No, so get, no, no, no. It's just like if I'm getting punched <laughs> in the face, I'm not thinking about my tight, my perceived tight hamstrings. I bet I could stretch like a motherfucker, but I would be pissed. So it would be hard. <laughs> it would be hard to get them to like not be mad and like measure it right away. But something like that. Uh, but anyway, I'd love to see the IRB proposal on that study. <laughs> Piecing, piecing some stuff together here. So you guys, you guys aren't really, there's nothing, there's nothing for you. Let's say that we're doing needle EMG. Let's, let's say it was like really sound EMG science and they showed a decrease in EMG during the same task. Would that mean anything to you? Would that mean muscular efficiency to you? No, because I mean, so you look at some of the stuff we know with like the internal versus external cueing, we see the same thing, like just depending on what, how a task is framed to you can change the EMG and increase performance. Like I, I think one of the, um, oh, her name is slipping my mind right now. Um, Wolf studies Gabrielle looked Wolf. at, yeah, looked at, uh, external cueing and showed a decrease in EMG and increased performance. And all they manipulated there was the frame with which the task was instructed. So yep. did they measure EMG? Yeah, they did. Yeah, they did. Was it surface yeah. EMG? Uh, uh, I'd have to look Dude, back I at it. Remembered her name. Well, uh, I'm just saying, if we're gonna knock surface EMG, you can't be. Yeah. If it's shit, it's shit. Well, or if it's shit, it's shit. But if they got the same results out of it from a different mechanism, it's yeah, it's still shit. Now I'm thinking of a. I would argue it's how you present the shit that matters, whether it's shit or not. We know, Mike. Pain science, go live in your world. Um, I don't oh, know last the, thing on my idea of needle MG plus foam rolling the same area that would suck. Yeah, I don't think I you would, could do that. Yeah, I don't think you could do that. 
Maybe the foam roll would, would be the way that you apply the needle. You, <laughs> oof. Okay. Meanwhile, like we'll just go ahead and biopsy you at the same time. Is that going to be the Saw 10 movie plot? There you go. Mm-hmm. Now, with the chief of articles... And, and go do, but first, needle EMG 10 by 10 sets of squats while foam rolling afterwards. Listen, man. If you... We want you gotta go hard if we want good science. So, <laughs> with the, with the chief, it may of, kill you. The Cheatham article, it doesn't. That article is very similar. I, I feel like they focus on. It, it was actually like uh, around the same time frame. They focus on very similar yeah. mechanisms, and the studies are pretty much the same. Is there anything that you guys want to touch on in the Cheatham article that we haven't touched on yet? <clears throat> I think all of Cheatham, for the most part, was just um, range of motion studies, um, and they found very similar things, that it was just an acute increase in ranges of motion for various body regions like hip and ankle. Yep. And if you look, you know, you, you see a lot of the maize and mites again. It says the research suggests that both foam rolling and the roller massage may offer short-term benefits for increased sit and reach scores. And it's like, okay, cool. Yeah, I, I just have, when, as I'm going through this article, I have a bunch of the effect sizes highlighted, and they all seem to be pretty damn small. Um, that's just one thing that kind of popped out to me as I, as I, was, as I was rolling through. Derek, do you have anything on, on that review, the Cheatham review? No, it was, I mean, I think all three of these are different versions of each other. I think the Beardsley one definitely is the best of the three of them, if I'm going to assign frustrated ranking to them the best um, not so great research studies yeah but you know it's i don't think that's a, any fart or like any fault of beardsley it's just no no you're trying to do a systematic review of not that good of research and cheatham you know the thing with cheatham and schroeder is it's interesting to note like how big the introduction and discussion sections go and how much they try and get get some mileage out of that and it just seems that both articles you know what the researchers bias was before you got into the article and uh, there's an excellent piece uh, called the control group is out of control that discusses the fact that that implicit bias, you know, if, if we know that's the case, if I say something doesn't work and you say something does work and we get handed the same data set and the data set sucks, you can twist it whichever way you want to drive your narrative out of that. Like, uh, I'm sure if Mike and I wrote that or wrote a foam rolling review based off the same information, the conclusions may be a little bit different. Hopefully we wouldn't write a two and a half page discussion on it, but you know, you never know. Mike and I can be verbose at times. Derek, stop tapping your finger as you say every syllable. Can you hear that? Really? Yeah. Oh, that's fine. It's all right, man. I got scolded last time for shuffling papers. So I wanted to present my argument. In the I, ambic- I agree yeah. with everything that you said, and it was emphasized very well. Yeah. And so I wanted to present my argument in iambic pentameter. <laughs> I think good. the only like last point I can think of from all of this in this whole discussion is I take a big issue with what we call this implement, especially in the research literature, as self-myofascial release. 
uh, it's a farce in of itself, as far as I can tell. Like, what in the fuck are you releasing? Where does it go when you release it? Are we releasing ghosts? Into the wild, Quinn. Does your body just reabsorb the, the dysfunctional tissue and recycle it to viable, healthy options? Of course. I don't even know what that means. That it kind of hurt good. my brain a little. <laughs> well, well, once you get the level five compassionate touch certification, you'll know all <laughs> about it. I want to start teaching that continue ed course. <laughs> no, not yeah, really. Just come follow me around, Mike. <laughs> just come shadow me for a couple of days and, and we'll help you out. <laughs> I can't, I can't, you just got to be there. I, I, oh, yeah, I have one yeah. thing that I want you guys to address just because I think we're going to get questions on it and you don't have to, we can just cut it off here. Um, body tempering. Oh man. Yeah. Well, I mean, whew, uh, I don't see any difference thus far. Like the weight of the implement doesn't have any bearing on the uh, outcome or the effect thus far. I I don't even know if I've, I think I've seen one study on body tempering and it wasn't impressive. I'd have to go look to see what the citation was for it. But uh, yeah, I mean, just because you increase the weight of the implement that you're utilizing uh, probably is still not having any effect uh, long term. It most likely isn't doing anything differently than what foam rolling is. It's just a new name and it weighs a little bit more and you can create a continue ed class out of it and make some money off of it. And charge a lot because the cylinder is made out of metal. That can be expensive. I think we did address it. Uh, we had a discussion earlier about the lack of evidence for the dose response curve. And if we don't understand that dose response out of it, you can scale it however you want to, and you still can't substantiate any claim off of it. It, it still goes back to, you know, if, if you want to do it, knock yourself out. If you want to do it and say you're releasing adhesions or creating some fixotropic response, you're off base. And, you know, we like to name things and we like to name things all kinds of different fancy stuff. Neurophysiological, body tempering, compassionate touch. You know, I think it's like we should just start throwing darts at a dartboard with letters on it and generating our uh, certifications off of that. And the problem is, you know, a lot of this stuff, it, it really shows that you there isn't this specificity of skill to where you need to do something one way. And if that's the case, then we don't really need all these certifications to begin with. And you don't need to be 17 letters after your name. It's basically, if you're doing that, you're saying, you know, like, I'm not good enough as a PT or I'm not good enough as a Cairo. I need the justification of somebody to say that I am capable of putting a piece of steel on someone's hamstring or sticking a needle somewhere. You know, it's, yeah, it, it's. So by time, all of this. No, oh, absolutely okay. not. Oh, okay. I mean, if you're going to do it, just go grab a hundred pound dumbbell and sit it on your quad. Have at it, man. Go ham. You don't need to pay someone to, to teach you how to do it the, the guru way. And you sure don't know to buy a $400 or whatever it costs cylinder of metal. Well, I, mean, I know some big dudes who do it. And I, my, my question is always, what's the difference between the guy whose thighs weigh a hundred pounds each laying on a foam roller and then putting the heavy implement that weighs the same as your leg on your leg? Like what's the, you know what I'm saying? It's usually yeah. self-directed pressure too, right? Like on the foam roller in the study, it's usually like you put your body weight on the foam roller, whereas now I guess you're just putting an implement just, on your body. Yeah, you're just inversing the load 
So, uh, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Anything else on this stuff, guys? Yeah, I think I think we hit the high notes. <sighs> Cam, let's send you some uh, ears of corn. That way you can start your uh, self-myofash release popcorn popping business. I got to be completely honest. Just- I'm, I'm annoyed... Number one, that this was our longest show. I'm, I'm pretty sure that, f- that this is our longest show, or it's, at least it's close, and it's on this particular topic. Uh, hopefully, hopefully, never again. Um, yeah. And also, I don't know how you guys felt. When I was reading the articles, as I was going through, I felt my irritation levels rise, not because of, not necessarily because of the studies or even the narratives in the studies, nothing like that, but the fact that this is now such a thing that we're putting putting together systematic reviews on this and and having to spend the resources and energy to try to learn about it and or debunk it and have evidence to refute when there's just so many other things like i'm just i'm glad it's out there so we can talk about it talk about these ideas but i just felt that as i was reading i was like gosh you know it's just nothing it's just so you know Three thirty seconds versus 47 seconds. It's a foam roll. It's a commercial foam roll versus the one you get from Theraband. It's this. Yeah, it's 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 frustrating, but it's necessary because look how prevalent foam rolling is. Um, I mean, yeah, it's uh, everywhere. A lot of people are making money off of it, and it needs to be done because now we can combat it and say, well, look, this is what we have evidence to yeah. say and not say. It wasn't the, yeah, and it's not the research necessarily that was, it was more of that. The fact that it has to be done to address what's out there. Well, when clinical practice is 10 years ahead of the research, so, you know. I think if we go back to the beginning, when Mike was given the historical perspective, it's what we see time and again. It's like person invents method, person names method after them or gives themselves some acronym. Person says they don't have time to research method because they are out espousing how great their method is. Finally, it hits critical mass to where a researcher gets pissed off and says, okay, let's do a study on this. But what about when the researcher is not pissed off and they're biased? Yeah. Lies. Well, <laughs> yeah. then you start a certain uh, subset of physical therapy that includes manipulation and dry needling. Um, oh Lord! But yeah, is there yeah, a name? Is there a name? Is there a name for that? Osteos. Oh man. Yeah. What? Uh, <laughs> one day, maybe that'll come about. One What's day. the back part of your uh, title, Mike? Practor. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. yeah. All right. <laughs> well, I look forward to that. I really look forward to the hate mail of this episode. I can't wait. I'm kind of excited. Uh, you know. Well, Derek's, Derek's like... cheating, cheating girlfriend slash wife line was <laughs> definitely the highlight. Yeah. Well, I, I feel like all this stuff, like it's not that we're saying anything crazy. It's just like, hey, guys, there's not a whole lot on this. It's not as shiny as we think it is, no matter how much you polish the steel. Or what is it? The uh, you can a polished turd is still a turd, or something like that. Yeah, depends on how you frame that turd, but yeah, yeah. or how how much um, it weighs. A polished turd is a lot of fertilizer. I think the title of this episode should be "Don't Cheat on Your Training with the Foam Roller." Maybe. <laughs> Where do I stick it? Oh God, <laughs> well, that's a pretty good one too. Give us some ideas, wow. everyone. Wait, you won't hear this until we oh, we'll have a name first. Damn it. Oh man, yeah. it's I'm sure somewhere on one of the sites there'll be some names come up. Yeah. 
Um, all right, we're gonna we're gonna wrap this one up before technology blows up in our face and we have actually negative listeners. Um, but we got some exciting things coming out. The event schedule will be coming out soon. 2018 event schedule, and um, we're releasing some awesome rehab protocols. If you want those, go to the website and sign up for our email list. It's right there on the front page. And then you'll be sent some free samples and we've got other awesome stuff in the works as well. So uh, until next time, bye.